making our city plan a little more current. This week, we're back from break, and I've avoided half of local politics half as well as should have liked, and I've missed less than half of you half as much as you deserve. We'll be learning from Kaylin Anderson about the one true ring of city planning, inventively called the City Plan. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speak Municipally, episode 93, where we have come back from vacation to see all of you contributing $5 million to the Oilers 50-50. And kudos, but you know, for only $10 a month, you could get a subscription to Taproot Edmonton, which includes all the roundups to your inbox, support for Speaking Municipally, and a whole host of other unique benefits. Who knows what will come down the line? All you got to do is go to taprootedmonton.ca and sign up. Uh, Do it while you're buying your 50-50 tickets. Actually, wait, it's closed, this one, because we went over the limit. You don't even have to buy your Orlo's 50-50 ticket. Just subscribe to Taproot Edmonton. Mac, do you think I laid it on thick enough? Oh, I love it. I love it. Our listeners will love it almost as much as they love the rapid fire segment. Jim Pattison, Broadcast Group's Now Radio, still wants you to join the conversation. However, with realities of physical distancing, it has laid off about 10% of its staff. In total, 40 people have departed across the broadcast group, leaving so much more room to just hang out without violating distancing rules. This represents a refinement on the Pattison process that was earlier developed in the grocery store owned by them, Save on Foods. Rather than pay their workers $2 an hour higher there, they opted just not do that and reaped a bunch of extra profits for the shareholders along the way. Now, rather than just reducing wages, they're experimenting with reducing positions entirely. President Rod Schween said that he was heartened by the professionalism of those departing, and the company promised that they would honor the legacy of the departed radio hosts by never mentioning them on air again, nor giving any public reason for their departure, therefore pristinely preserving their airtime. Sick of receiving comments about it on social media, a pandemic-bearded Don Iveson took to the airwaves donning a medical mask saying, There, it's covered. Are you happy? The mayor, who had previously tried out facial hair during the Oilers' playoff run to mixed reviews, was reportedly seen outside a downtown Starbucks throwing disposable blue masks at office workers and could be overheard screaming, quote, You could have just said, Oh no, it looks great, Don, but here we are with a bylaw, end quote. When asked for comment, the mayor's office responded in an email saying, Indoor masking is a proven effective method to reduce COVID transmission, and the mayor looks very handsome with his stubble. Edmonton is electrifying its transit system in an attempt to reduce noise, improve service, and aid in the fight against climate change. A fleet of 137 electric buses will descend upon a route length of nearly 127 kilometers. These technological developments are just one part of the rapid pace of change we can expect to see as we move forward through 1939... Wait... Hmm. Oh, wrong electric buses. We got rid of all of those in 2009. But hey, this press release says we're, quote, making history by deploying like 20 buses. So judging by the cyclical period by which electric buses have come back into fashion, I guess I should just go make an appointment at my hairdresser and get some frosted tips. Speaking Municipally is a part of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. And this episode is brought to you by Shift Podcast by Alberta Innovates. The Shift Podcast showcases the work being done in the province's innovation ecosystem, everything from health to clean energy. You can join hosts Katie Dean and John Hagen as they interview the researchers, entrepreneurs, and businesses that are shifting our perspective about innovation in Alberta. Find Shift Podcast by Alberta Innovates on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, you can always find it online at shift.albertainnovates.ca. 
That's shift.albertainnovates.ca. We're going to start our back to the show episode with what exactly what you'd expect from speaking municipally. We're going to get right into the nitty gritty of city planning because, hey, what's a way to open back up after break than just jumping into a bunch of minutia about urban planning? And to facilitate that, we've got a guest on uh, the director of the city plan at the city of Edmonton, Kaylin Anderson. Hi, Kaylin. Hey, how are you? We're doing pretty good. It is now as of recording, it's Wednesday, so one of the stupid hot days. Uh, do you have AC where you are? <laughs> I do, but I actually also went for a super long walk today in the sun, and uh, you know, I'm I'm earning my AC right now. Let me put it that way. <laughs> um, so the city plan is the city planning document that hey goes ahead and plans for the city as it grows to two million people. Did I do that justice, Mac? I think so. Yeah, that's uh, what we keep hearing about this magic number of two million people. Uh, the plan posits this question. What choices do we need to make to be a healthy, urban, and climate-resilient city of 2 million people that supports a prosperous region? Uh, The city plan, as I'm sure we'll hear from Kaylin, is meant to replace all of our existing plans, which collectively are known as the ways, so the way we grow, the way we move, all of that. It's meant to be a high-level document, you know, that 30,000-foot view. It's meant to be a living document that's refreshed every now and then. I think it's about 10 years since we've done our municipal development plan here in Edmonton. And it's meant to be kind of looking longer term, longer range. And so it kind of is a high level document that guides the lower level documents that we typically would talk about on speaking municipally when there's a rezoning or uh, one of those types of things. Is that more or less accurate, Kaylin? <laughs> yes, that's very accurate. Thanks, Mac. Okay. Uh, well, my first question then is actually just a little bit about that context that 10 years ago, I think it was 2010, that the council adopted the way we grow. Were you involved in that? Do you remember what that process was like? Yeah, actually, um, that was my first gig at the city of Edmonton. I just finished my master's program at McGill and I was looking for work across the country. And lo and behold, I got a temporary 11 month contract as a, a planner one to join this project to develop the way we grow. So I just feel really like things have come full circle for me in my career that I started my very first planning job working on the way we grow. And uh, the most recent thing that I've just uh, led is in fact, the the comprehensive replacement of all of those ways plans. So yep, I was pretty involved. And then in the intervening uh, decade, uh, of course, I've been doing implementation work, like things like the infill roadmap, uh, and, and growth analysis work to monitor how we were doing uh, and many other exciting things like working, helping on uh, with fresh and other kind of policies that rolled out of the way we grow. So when I think about the city plan, um, while an exciting project in and of itself and kind of a career highlight, I'm sure, and something that will be very exciting for our city, uh, it's actually just the first step in a much more interesting conversation that will roll out over the years and decades to come as all of that implementation takes place. Yeah, we want to get into that uh, implementation and make sure that uh, we press you on that a little bit, uh, because that's something that is a criticism of all of these city plans, not just the big ones, but the little ones too. Like, does it just go sit on a shelf somewhere? Just quickly on the on the last plan, uh, I'm curious if you remember anything about that time specifically, because I think now we look at it and infill is a highlight from the MDP uh, from 2010. But there was some other things that stood out for me. Like that was kind of the the time that Michael Walters, councillor, rose to prominence uh, over the the land battles in the Northeast. There were some interesting things that came out of that. You mentioned Fresh, the the food and ag strategy that came out of that. Was there anything else that sort of stuck in your mind about that time? 
Yeah, like, well, okay, so you did cover a couple of really important ones. You know, it is worth noting that 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 infill target was the first time we'd ever even come up with such a thing. And and 25% sounded so audacious. And I remember at the time, a couple of counselors uh, even said, you know, this isn't going far enough. And others were saying this is way too far. Uh, And actually, both both positions were correct, because in the first kind of seven years of the plan, we never got close to it. And then suddenly, uh, right at the end, over the last few years, we've been hitting 25% over and over again, which is pretty exciting. So yeah, that was a big one. The kind of major conversation around urban agriculture. I don't know that that had happened in the city before in such a coordinated and sustained way. And it actually resulted in an entire chapter being added to the way we grow uh, during the 18-month public hearing process. And it took 18 months because a whole chapter was added. So that was pretty exciting. And one more thing that I would add, which I think was a pretty good turning point, and it set us in a good direction, um, was this idea that um, the, the transportation master plan, which is called the way we uh, move, and then this the municipal development plan called the way we grow should be uh, kind of partners together. And we should think about integrating transportation and land use, which now seems like a no-brainer, um, not to say that we don't have a ton of work to do, but at that time, just even having duplicate policies or nods between documents was kind of a big idea. And so I think all of that set the stage for where we are now, which is we can think about pretty significant urban transformation. Food and urban agriculture is just baked into this plan. And I, what I think is mo- most important and most interesting is that you know, we don't have to talk about integrating transportation and land use. They're literally the same plan. This The city plan doesn't work if you think about things as separate silos um, of topic area. So um, actually, there is one more thing I should add. <laughs> Sorry, not to be too, too casting back here to the way we grow. Um, but from a, an urban growth perspective, probably the biggest thing that the way we grow did was to add three giant areas of land in the northeast, southeast and southwest for future growth. Um, which set off a bit of a a chain reaction over the years to come in terms of getting ASPs prepared and NSPs. And those are, sorry for the acronyms there, those are just kind of different types of plans that set those areas uh, in good shape to be able to build out. And uh, so all of that planning work was completed over the last decade. And a lot of those neighborhoods that were contemplated have actually been developed since then. So I have had the displeasure of looking at my work from 10 years ago. Now, granted, I get that you weren't the only person working on The Way We Grow and now the city plan, but you said it's like a full cycle. You worked on The Way We Grow as your first gig, and now you're the director of the city plan. Do you ever look back at some of your old plans and think, God, what was this person doing? (laughs) Of course. I mean, you know, it's just human to want to just, you know, blur all that out and think just about the great things. I think urban development in Edmonton and city building over the last 10 years has been incredibly dynamic and exciting. Um, I don't think there would have been a better place to think about municipal affairs or growth um, in the whole country than, than than looking at Edmonton. I mean, what we've gone through in the last decade has just been astonishing. So, yeah, of course, there have been some some things that I've worked on. I thought, ah, wish, wish, woulda, coulda, shoulda. Uh, and other things that were sort of like um, just grew way bigger than I would have imagined happening. You know, the fact that our city council eliminated parking minimums from the zoning bylaw just before the summer break, that's a leading urbanist move across the continent. And I think that just, you know, didn't come out of nowhere. 
Um, this is kind of work upon work upon work. We all stand on the shoulders of giants and work together on these things. Um, but through kind of policy initiatives and political leadership and, you know, more technical things like zoning and considering integration with affordable housing and social equity and mobility, suddenly all of this starts to come together. And sometimes there are these just these huge, um, amazing wins. Um, but yeah, of course, uh, there's definitely some stumbling blocks. I mean, who hasn't had those all over the place in their careers? Um, to, to err is human, I think. That's really interesting about the, you mentioned the parking minimums, because that seems like a pretty tangible impact. But as you say, it's kind of many levels down the line from the higher level plan, right? So mm-hmm. maybe we should talk about the, the city plan then, move forward from 2010 to where we are uh, today. My very first important question on that is, is it the city plan or city plan? Like, do we drop the the like Facebook or, or what do we call it? <laughs> um, there were some differences of opinion uh, about what it should be called, but ultimately ended up being, we, we refer to it as the city plan, but on the front cover of the document, it's just called Edmonton City Plan. So its official name will be Edmonton City Plan. Um, but for the purposes of just basic communication, uh, we're just calling it the city plan and that should uh, that should stand. Okay, and we're talking about this now in August of 2020, just very quickly, where are we at in the process? This is a, you know, multi-year process to get a plan like this drafted and approved and everything that goes into it. Are we nearing the finish line? Oh, yeah, we're very, very close. So um, the project started in 2018 uh, and went full, kind of full steam ahead for two years. And actually on March 16th, we were scheduled to go to Urban Planning Committee with basically the full city plan. And so that's a really big deal to build up to something like that. And then at uh, noon on the 13th, we were all sent home from work. Uh, for this, you know, COVID. And we, I didn't know what, to, I don't know what you thought was going to happen. I was very naive. I thought, well, maybe we'll be back next week, or, you know, maybe we're going to be delayed a month or, or I didn't know what to think. But then as it turns out, here we are basically, you know, six months later, and I'm, I'm happy to, to let you know that we're, we're getting things back on track here and we're getting set up to hopefully be going to public hearing in September. So, you know, it was a very abrupt transition. It had been such a robust public conversation, so much energy around it. Uh, and we were about to take it forward for discussion. And then we're, we were COVIDized to some extent, yeah. uh, just like everything else. And then it, we just sort of paused and, and, you know, took it, it took a backseat for a while. And then now we're in a position where uh, we can bring it forward again. So yeah, we went from sort of, you know, 100 miles an hour to zero. And now we're, uh, you know, gaining speed once again, so that we can bring this to our decision makers in the public to actually share their input, which is the most interesting and important part of the whole process. So I think maybe the next spot we need to cover is Hey, what are we talking about? We're talking about this high-level city plan document to plan for the city of 2 million people. How does it do that? What's the Coles note on city plan? So really, the city plan at its foundation is trying to give us a long-range roadmap for how Edmonton should um, build and sustain itself over time. And so many plans, most plans, ours included in Edmonton and in many other cities, uh, they will pick something like a date. So they'll say this is a plan for 2050 or 2046 is what Ottawa has just done. Or they will pick a number of years and they'll say this is a 10-year plan or a 15-year plan or a 35-year plan or something like that. So um, as you both know, uh, anybody who's been in this economy of Alberta knows our growth is really volatile. It goes um, up and down. It speeds up. It slows down. 
And so we were thinking about, okay, every plan needs to have some sort of horizon towards which it's looking so that we can actually start to plan things out. But we didn't want to pick a number of years. uh, And we didn't, in fact, want to pick a certain date because then it really ties a specific population projection to a certain year. So instead, we focused on the unit of measurement that actually matters the most, which is the people who live in Edmonton. So um, Edmonton's current population doubled over the last 40 years. And that's not an unreasonable kind of long range horizon to think about the doubling of a population. Um, So that was where that idea of planning to 2 million came from. Um, But then, of course, you don't really grow from one to two million. So instead, we broke it down into 250,000 person chunks, um, which again, if we're averaging things out, could be like 10 years a piece. And that really starts to uh, give you the kind of time frame that you can work with to do things like change the zoning bylaw, invest in transit, um, you know, mature for, you know, your approach to affordable housing uh, or other social programs and all the things that will come um, as a result of something like a city plan. So what I would say is what it does do is it is it is it anchors us uh, in a future state where we're thinking about where we want to go in response to council's strategic plan called Connect Edmonton. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't outline a series of actions like do this, do that, do the other thing, because that's going to be the work um, that will take, you know, some of it will probably start, you know, this fall and other parts of this plan probably won't start for five, 10 or maybe even 15 or 30 years, depending on how far we're looking. So um, what it does do is it covers everything from how we move and live and the environmental stewardship that we want to um, care for, uh, as well as our prosperity. And it really anchors the whole thing in planning for people. And so thinking about the human experience and what it is Edmontonians love about their city today and what they hope and wish for their city to um, become in the future. One thing that uh, caught my eye in there is it says not everything in the city plan is about making something new. Some of the work is about, or much of the work is about keeping things the same. Well, what does that mean when we're thinking about growing to 2 million people? We think about building new things. A fellow I really uh, have a lot of respect for, he's, he's my counterpart at the city of Ottawa. He said that what I thought was a pretty beautiful thing um, to me, just kind of as an offhand comment, maybe about two or three years ago. And he said, you know, a good range, long range planner holds, you know, between 100 and 200 years on their arms. They have to, because you have to be thinking back in terms of the legacy that you are stewarding, the good and the bad of that. And you have to be thinking forward in terms of what you want to bring into the future. So one of the things that the city plan isn't is a radical transformational, let's just build a different kind of Edmonton sort of plan, because that's not realistic. And it doesn't really reflect anything about how cities actually organically change over time and adapt. So a lot of the things that are the most special about Edmonton, based on what we heard from Edmontonians, We've actually been stewarding for almost 100 or over 100 years. So the most obvious is our North Saskatchewan River Valley system. Um, The fact that we have the largest urban park, connected urban park in North America, is not a mistake, or not an accident, rather, I should say. It's not an accident. And there have been 100 years of of people who have been taking care of this land, um, preserving it for its park purpose, expanding on it, trying to knit pieces together. So that's an example of something that, Uh, ideally, well, and we do say it in the city plan, like one of our responsibilities here is to carry on that legacy and to keep moving it forward. So um, yes, we're talking about things like infrastructure, of course, the the kind of the natural spaces, big areas of our city, 
we've inherited all of this. And then as our gift to the future, we can be good stewards. So a lot of what planning is, is actually not about making change, although some of it is, but a lot of what planning is, is really just thinking about how do we notice our assets and our resilience and how do we make sure that we're really good caretakers of that so that we're not the generation who didn't do our job in that regard, if that makes sense. So one of the key points, I think it's a fair characterization to say of the previous development plans is we wanted increased infill. And what jumped to mind is, you know, densifying our core areas of the city. Uh, and with the sort of ambition that if we want to build on our footprint, we can just shove people closer to the core and build up those areas. And I think what we found over time is that that becomes pretty significantly unaffordable. I live in Hazeldean and I live in a 1947 Junker house when I bought it and it was still really stressing my price budget. So a lot of the things that are changing in this new city plan is a more nodes and corridors and districts plan. Uh, I wonder how that came to be because Edmonton doesn't really feel to me like a collection of districts in the way that something like New York City might. Um, is this something that you went on the ground and observed, or is this more what you're talking about where planning can guide changes for the future? That's a really good question, and I feel like it does both. It both responds to our real context now, and it kind of um, projects forward the aspiration for how we can most effectively serve the broadest amount of our community, kind of a utilitarian sort of, I guess, way of putting that. Um, but in terms of looking at how Edmonton functions today, we're really a polycentric city. So we have a lot of different kind of town centers. They might not show up in the way that you would think of in a really kind of uh, older community that's much more has much more distinctive town centers like the boroughs in New York, for example. Um, but we do have distinct parts of town that people associate with. And we have employment areas all over the city. We have, of course, the downtown, but there's also the U of A area. There's the West Edmonton Mall area. There's big industrial areas all around the city. So people are working in many different locations. And of course, our physical city is very dispersed. So there was there was that. Um, we also came up with this idea in response to what Edmontonians said. They thought about Edmonton, which they actually, one of the phrases they kept that kept getting used over and over is that Edmonton is a community of communities. And, they, and I think that was meant in two ways, both physically and geographically, but it was also meant in terms of there are many distinct communities in Edmonton, uh, in whichever way you want to define those. So when we were thinking about, okay, um, Edmonton's physical layout is very dispersed. There are many different animation points across the city. And to your point, Troy, about like the affordability of housing. Yeah. I mean, if you really just concentrate the opportunity for more development to happen in a smaller area, that is sending a, sending a real strong signal to the market, which is that certain areas are ripe for redevelopment while others are not. So that can affect pricing, et cetera. So you want to think about, okay, well, how can you sort of take any of that artificial barrier away while opening up more opportunity citywide? And in the way we grow, just to draw back to what we were talking about before, one of the things that's pretty different between the city plan and the way we grow is I call the way we grow urban form concept kind of a tree ring city. There was kind of the, the, the downtown, the central neighborhoods, the mature neighborhoods, the what, what we called established and then developing. And then we sort of had different ways of thinking about each of those. It was almost like what was important about where you lived was dictated by the year in which your house was built. So 
Instead, with the city plan, we're thinking, no, you know, just because one house is built in 1946 and another might be built in 1976, they might actually share different characteristics, which happen all over the city. So when we're thinking about nodes and corridors, we actually open up a lot more of Edmonton to intensification over time, which should take pressure off, I think, concentrating development in certain areas. There will always be hotspots, of course, based on consumer demand and what people want. Um, but we can also, um, you know, bring more uh, supply uh, into our context. And we can allow kind of main streets and town centers to be all over Edmonton so that people can really begin to live more locally and they can they can get what they need close to where they live or work, uh, no matter where they are in the city. So that's the long-term hope. And it also takes a more nuanced view, I think, of, of infill and redevelopment because it, it sees every community as a, a redeveloping neighborhood at some point in the future. And one of the big city moves in the city plan is called um, rebuildable city, which is this idea that we think, you know, even if your house was built in 1990, by the time this plan horizon is done, it will be ripe for redevelopment. So just always thinking about the fact that every community changes, it has a life cycle, and um, that'll happen in different waves across the whole pattern of the city um, was kind of what guided the thinking here. I really love this idea that the age of your house is not the only thing that dictates, you know, the, the sort of planning, the way we think about planning in your area. But I'm I'm struggling a little bit to match up this nice planning theory with the reality that I see. Like if you live in downtown or Oliver or one of these central neighborhoods, you really can walk to almost everything you need in 15 minutes. And, and you know, in the districts and the city plan, it talks about this 15 minute trip time. But, you know, I've made fun of Windermere, for instance, in the past for in their marketing, talking about being a walkable city, but or walkable uh, community. But it's big box stores and giant freeways that you have to cross. And it's not very friendly as a human being to walk on at all. It's fine if you're in a vehicle, but not really if you're on foot or using active transportation. So how do we how do we square that circle? How do we get closer to making that a reality? Are we really going to have town centers all over the place when our our legacy is built around cars? Yeah, good question. I mean, this is why the, the mobility system and the land use system are uh, can't be untangled or untethered from one another. Uh, so unless we have really good, uh, high quality walking, cycling and transit infrastructure, it's going to be very, very difficult to really achieve those 15 minute uh, districts that are in the city plan. So the mobility goals of the plan are just as important as thinking about the land development that will happen in terms of nodes and corridors, etc. And I would also say that probably Westmount in 1955, when it was kind of the houses were between zero and 25 years old, and Westmount Shopping Mall was the bright, brightest and best thing uh, that had happened in our city and was kind of a model in North America, that that would probably wasn't like a very walkable community either. So we always have to remember, too, that things evolve over time. So... Um, when we're thinking about brand new communities, like in our, uh, I would say our developing neighborhoods now, whether it's Windermere or uh, Dakota or in, in Horse Hills, um, they might be like every pattern of development has a generation and every way that we develop is really anchored in the transportation typology that we have to work with at the time. 
So it doesn't mean just because we build something a certain way doesn't mean that we're 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 stuck with that mo- model forever. And we do see uh, cities change, and we say see the way that we move does change. Um, so what I would say is for something like um, Windermere and the, the the towns or the potential town center that is there, and I know that there is a good commercial site there right now. Though that that site is serving a purpose right now. But imagine, you know, 50 years from now, what might be happening there. And then, you know, pair that with an idea that maybe we're not moving uh, there the same way or moving between neighborhoods in the same way. So one of the things that we were pretty explicit about in the plan is that the future of mass transit for the purpose of the city plan has to remain technology agnostic. We really don't know what the future of the technology is going to be. And we need to be ready to integrate it into our city. We do know the kind of um, outcomes that we want to achieve in terms of like circuitry and connectivity to, you know, within and between places and having really human centered design and having a seamless system that, you know, lets people get around just without without barriers and just kind of organically. We know what we would like to see as an outcome. What we don't know is that in, you know, 2047, what's going to be the best state-of-the-art technology at that time? We don't know. Uh, so we wanted to make sure that we left that door open while being clear about the sort of service objectives that we wanted to resolve over time. So in 2047, we may not know, you know, what the current scooter of the day is or what autonomous magic is going to get us around, but I'm pretty sure we'll still have snow and it'll still be cold. And so one of my pet peeves about city planning documents is they are almost always summer focused, even though we have a lot of winter here in Edmonton. So I searched through the draft plan and the word winter comes up just five times in 182 pages. Should I read into that at all? I don't think so. Um, you can, though. You know, if it's a 15-minute trip, <laughs> I'm going to walk somewhere. That's a very different 15 minutes on a day like today versus a minus 30 blowing snow, icy condition kind of day, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody who's really living, working, you know, in Edmonton would ever for one second think that we're a sunny summer city 12 months of the year. We know where we are <laughs> geographically. We know that we have four very distinct seasons. As we were pulling together all of the work that was already kind of in the ways documents, we needed to be really careful not to let things repeat too often. So everything's got its due, hopefully, although we'll hear from people, maybe it doesn't have its due, in which case we'll make adjustments. Everything has its due, but ideally it's not repeating itself too often. So there are think about, yeah, four or five policies dedicated explicitly to Winter City. Um, but then you'll see in other kind of more gentler references to kind of all seasons, all conditions across many other policies in the plan. Um, but I, I think that, well, I don't think, I know that you can build a great city in any climate. Uh, climate's not the, you know, not the number one barrier or opportunity to, to great city building and city making. So, you know, Edmonton is a winter city. It's also a spring city. It's a fall city. And beautifully, it's a summer city, too. So hopefully, hopefully we've gotten enough um, in there to cover that territory. But again, like this is where the public hearing is so much fun and so illuminating and so important, because that's where we'll hear hopefully from dozens or a hundred people or who knows. Uh, I don't want to, you know, sort of predict that too too sharply in terms of what they see as, as great opportunities or, or missing links or gaps in the plan. And we'll also get the, the political conversation and the questions. So through that process, um, that's how we turn something like a draft city plan into an actual bylaw. And that's that's the kind of conversation that I'm looking forward to. And I'm, I can't wait to hear 
what, what transpires. Part of your work, like you said, you were scheduled to present to council on the 16th of March and a little wee pandemic interrupted that just for a little while. But COVID probably affects how we plan for our cities. Was there any talk within the department or I guess if you're the director, was there any top down direction from you to say, hey, do we need to reassess parts of our city plan for the potential of future pandemics, future global catastrophes like this, where uh, infectious diseases, which spread from close contact, may resurface? Uh, was was that a thought in the past few months or during the development of the plan? Well, definitely over the last few months. Yeah, it's hard to hard to be not thinking about all things COVID almost all the time. But during the preparation of the plan, we actually did deliberately think about disruption and sort of chaos, if you will, uh, and what that might mean in terms of a long range plan, because, you know, there's no point in creating something that's so kind of pristine and crystallized that it will shatter at first minor impact whenever something happens. And and plans aren't supposed to be crystal balls. They're not uh, predicting the future. They're saying, here's the aspirations that we currently have for our future. And here's what we would hope to achieve generally. And so you'll see a lot of different, there, well, there are a lot of different ways of doing long range planning. But with the city plan, we deliberately wanted to have an outcome based plan, which means that we're basically describing the conditions that will emerge when we kind of get our get ourselves all aligned in the same direction to move towards this idea of the city that we've said that we want to build together rather than being super duper prescriptive. We hired a number of different consultants to help us really from coast to coast in terms of all kinds of different expertise. One of the teams that we brought in was actually, it was a bit of a, a wild card kind of an idea, but we thought we need somebody to help us kind of unpack disruption and resilience and, and what's going to happen. So we um, we actually got a, a kind of a paper written and it was put on our, it's part of our technical papers, which is really about planning in an age of disruption. So we were thinking about things like environmental change, social change, economic fluctuation, um, major demographic shifts. That's what we were thinking about at that time. We were not considering a pandemic. But, you know, over the last few months, of course, we've had to look at this plan and say, whoa, how is it going to stand up to this kind of this changing environment? Um, and in addition to the pandemic, we've also had major uh, kind of social justice disruption across the world at the same time. So on more than one um, dimension here, well, we've had the health pandemic and economic crisis and social unrest. That's all really emerged in the last six months. So, of course, you could look at the city plan and say, well, you know, how does it stand up? So I think if it had been super duper prescriptive and said, you know, this exact thing is going to happen by this exact year, then we would be in trouble. But it doesn't because it really just focuses on creating the right kind of context for the future that Edmontonians have said that they want to have. Uh, it doesn't really matter if there are kind of ebbs and flows in terms of timelines when things get done or in terms of uh, different prioritization. The one, the one thing that I would note is that Kind of right before summer break, um, our executive leadership team at the city brought forward a paper, a thought piece. I think uh, it was referred to as a thought piece called Reimagine to, to council to really start thinking about, you know, what are the kinds of things that we need to do to come out of COVID? The city plan was kind of the, a lot of information was really anchored in this idea of the city plan and focusing on these big city moves. And then really it's about, you know, sequencing of where, where's our priority first? It's not that, you know, we, we do care about winter in 2019 that we winter city planning in 2018. We don't care in 2021. It's not like that at all. It just means that, you know, what would be the things that we would need to do right now to be the most effective to our current context 
uh, while respecting the spirit of this longer range idea uh, so that we don't lose the strategic planning focus of our city as we deal with emergent issues. Part of that broad change and that uh, description of the outcomes that you want the city to be achieving, I imagine given how our city works, a lot of that will come from zoning. Zoning will be the mechanism to get that done. We're currently doing a zoning bylaw renewal. Both sort of have to influence the other, I would assume, but the city plan you said isn't prescriptive. So to what extent is there collaboration with the zoning bylaw renewal? How do they interact and how will they shape each other? Yeah, they are. The zoning bylaw is probably one of the, from an urban planning perspective, is probably the most important implementation tool of any long-range statutory plan, Um, not just in Edmonton, but in any city. So plan to do both projects has been co-considered very carefully for the last couple of years. And I know that the zoning bylaw renewal kind of publicly is really starting to gather steam right now, but it's been behind the scenes, it's been getting going for the last 18 months to two years. And I know that you had Anne on, I think it was almost two years ago at this point, uh, to talk about that process. So the city plan will say things like that we need to manage parking uh, and curbside space as a strategic public asset. And that is the only comment that the city plan has about parking at all. Uh, so then what the, the zoning bylaw would do, you know, now it's been interesting with this recent decision, what the zoning bylaw would do would then take that and say, what is a strategic public asset? What would this mean in our context, et cetera? And then they would build out all the rules. So from a macro perspective, the city plan kind of is that very first step that says, for example, here's our big districts, here's our, our aspiration for parks, here's our aspiration for employment lands, here's our aspiration for the center city. And then the next thing that happens is that the zoning bylaw um, getting overhauled in response to the city plan will connect the regulations to the policy in a really clear way. So city plans going forward this fall, and I think it'll be about 18 months later that the zoning bylaw will follow, which allows them to be completely knitted together. My sense, given that you just described the single largest issue in any Edmontonian debate, parking, in a single (laughs) sentence, is there really much to debate about the city plan? Is there, do you expect there to be a lot of pushback on public hearing? (laughs) No, I I definitely expect a robust conversation. Uh, I would hope for nothing less. Um, in fact, to come forward with a big public policy document and to have n- no no conversation uh, would not be a good thing. Uh, there's a lot in the plan that will create a lot of conversation. So, for example, the idea that we want to double our population without changing our boundary uh, means that we are explicitly saying we don't want to annex anymore and that we're going to intensify quite deliberately and that we'd like to phase and stage our growth Um, as we move outwards into our new suburban areas in a way that we have not done before. So on all of those dimensions, there's going to be a lot of different stakeholders with a lot of different opinions. I'll get to be be as concrete as I can. So of the next million people that are coming to Edmonton, ideally 600,000 of them are going to be added to the land inside of the Anthony Hende, which is like adding a Saskatoon and a half into the Hende on top of the city that we have. So that's a lot of change. Now, it's going to take, you know, four to five decades for that to happen, But still, that's a a very big thing. Um, Also talking about, you know, how we're going to grow out into our new neighborhoods and how we'd like to not open the land all at once, you know, will be a a topic of conversation, I'm sure. Um, The very big emphasis on mass transit, cycling and walking, I'm sure, will will elicit a lot of debate. Um, The climate targets are pretty robust. 
And I'm sure that that will elicit a lot of debate. Um, additionally, there is a, a lot to be said about, you know, the, the people support components of the plan, you know, whether it's, you know, talking about equity, affordability, diversity, truth and reconciliation, safety for women and girls. Like there is a lot going on in the plan. So to Max earlier question about four policies just for winter, well, yes and no, like maybe four is too many or maybe it's not enough, but it's kind of the impact of each of them and what's it doing. So I, I think the plan, there's something for everyone to talk about. Let me put it that way, if they were interested to find it on any sort of dimension. So I do hope and believe that there will be some pretty robust debate. And I think that our, our, our elected officials will have some tough decisions to make, which is, which is great. Like that's, that's ideal that there's going to be this, this dialogue and this conversation. Um, whether somebody wants to talk specifically about parking or about, you know, vision zero or whatever it's going to be, there's room in the city plan. There's a policy for all of those things, basically. So I'd be pretty surprised if we didn't have people uh, coming out and sharing their opinions, whether it's, you know, to the to the very positive, to the very negative, um, or just to the kind of generally supportive neutral. Um, I think we're going to see the full breadth. So as you say, it'll take, you know, four to five decades for a lot of those things to come to fruition. Do you ever worry that you know, it sounds like a lot of work that you and your team have put into this. There'll be thousands of Edmontonians who will have provided input. Do you ever worry that, you know, we're probably going to have to refresh this in a decade and the winds of political change may take us in a very different direction than what this looks at? Because we're, we're thinking about to 2 million people, but this isn't certainly going to stay static from now until the time we get there. It's going to have to evolve. What, what, what do you think about that? Is that scary or is that exciting? Yeah, well, I think that's one of the Achilles heels of long-range plants. Um, and so this time, what we proposed was something different. So often long-range plans become what I call set-it-and-forget-it plans. So they get adopted amid much fanfare. Kind of five years out, things are feeling a little fuzzy. Some things aren't working. We just don't talk about them or we do talk about them. And then a decade later, enough changes occurred that there's kind of a pent-up desire to kind of redo the whole the whole thing. So Edmonton's legacy of long-range planning has been that we do these big plans and then we let them go for whether it's 10 years or 15 or 20, uh, and then we redo them again. But many cities just keep one plan and they keep it up to date all the time, uh, which I find pretty inspiring. So when I went to school in, in Montreal, of course, you have to study the, the, the city that you're you know, in. So the first master plan that I studied was the Montreal master plan. And it was celebrating its 25th birthday, the year that I was in university. And the way that they uh, were able to do that is they kept it up to date pretty much continuously. So in thinking about the city plan, um, we're actually proposing that we bring it back to public hearing every single year, uh, which can sound exciting or can sound tedious, depending on what perspective. Um, but the idea is that if we bring it back to council every single year at public hearing for a continued debate, we can refine little bits and pieces and reaffirm where things are working so that hopefully the plan is never completely wildly out of sync or if something uh, major happens that we have to take account for, we can deal with it in a timely manner and keep it always a living plan. And then I'd imagine that about every 10 years or so, or whenever we hit, you know, kind of that next 250,000 people, there might be a reason to um, more comprehensively look at it and make sure that it's still serving the purposes of the, the community well. And if it's not, then it needs to be updated. But ideally, what we're, what we're not going to do is just have this plan adopted 
and walk away and hope it does its job well. And then in 10 or 15 years go, ah, let's redo this whole thing. Um, so instead, by keeping it up to date every single year, we'll be able to, to keep this, this long range plan evergreen. I think uh, we're getting close to the end. And there's one important question that we've left unasked until the list point, And it's what all of our listeners want to know. Precisely how many kilometers of bike lanes does the city plan say we should build? <laughs> that is a trick question for me. I don't know the answer to that. I'm the worst with facts like that. Oh, I wish one of my colleagues were here. <laughs> they would like be able to rattle it off. You know, it was pretty cool working on the city plan. I have to say we built this team. We had about at the height of it, I think we had eight people pulling, pulling hard on the city plan. And we had transportation engineers and public engagement people. And we had uh urban planners of different types and stripes. And then we were tapping into the whole organization. But what it did mean is that for somebody like me, uh, I didn't have to memorize every fact because I knew that Hawaii knew or Pablo knew. And, they were just, and they're not with me on this call. So I don't know how many kilometers uh, of anything that we have, which is terrible. Um, but that's just, I'm just not. Uh, does it actually have a number? Like, does it actually say we should build this many? Or does it just say something more <laughs> no. like your example earlier, bike lanes are important and we should have them? Well, we do have the bike map. So what we have in terms of the bikes is we have the, the at the district levels for the full system map. But then the really nitty gritty, interesting stuff uh, is going to be more further detailed in the actual bike plan, which, Dan, you know, Daniel and Nathan and, you know, Dallas have been working on for a couple of years. Uh, and it's going to come out later this summer. So they would know exactly how many kilometers of bike lanes and they would have a better sense of like phasing and staging of which parts would come first but the city plan itself has the big beautiful active transportation network uh which is you know for the purpose of a city plan is basically the bike grid at a super macro scale um and if i asked one of my colleagues how many kilometers like they would totally know so i'm sorry my bad that's a future episode (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think you should you should talk to the bike plan people they can answer all your specific kilometer questions and they could probably tell us exactly how many emergency bike lanes have been built yeah, that's right. <laughs> so if there's right. one thing you'd like people to remember for the city plan what's the key takeaway from all of this what is the thing that you're sending home to listeners to either eat your peas or come back for dessert the future for edmonton just as the future for all of the world likely is urban which means that our best bet at being a successful place is to embrace that urban future and try to create wonderful, um, energized um, spaces and places that support businesses and people to thrive. So that's basically what the, what the point of the city plan is. It's like, how do we create the kind of city that's actually going to help us thrive and is ha- going to attract that next million people, just as the folks 40 years ago were, were working to support us today, really thinking about that intergenerational kind of uh, stewardship that we're doing. So I would say the future's urban. Um, cities are where humanity is going to live more and more. And we have a wonderful city in Edmonton. And let's make it the best, most attractive and most kind of resilient place that we can. And so the city plan won't deliver on that big mandate, of course, that's going to take all of us and many generations of us to keep working on that. Um, But it really solidifies the idea that we care about our place. We love it. We want to see it thrive and we want to work together to get it there. That's a great place to end it on. Thanks so much for coming to talk to us, Kaylin. It was fascinating to hear about the city plan. And I am sure all of our listeners, because they're the just precise quantity of dork, they all really enjoyed this too. So thanks for coming to talk to us. 
Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm a big fan. Oh, man. I think this is the first time we've ever had a first time long time uh, in the sign-off. Oh, yeah, pack. that's awesome. That's very good. I'm excited about that. You'll know, Kaylin, exactly how we have to end this episode then. So until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And I'm Kaylin. And we're Speaking Municipally. But wait, there's no closing credits music just yet. This episode is brought to you by World on Fire, a new podcast from CBC Edmonton. World on Fire is a new five-part series that takes you to the front lines of the out-of-control wildfires in Canada, Australia, and California. Recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, now, hosts Adrian Lamb and Mike Flanagan look at what it takes to find hope in the midst of fear, destruction, and how communities affected by wildfires rebuild. The series examines the high costs that wildfires cause to people's health, homes, and communities. You can find World of Fire on the CBC Listen app or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it online at cbc.ca slash worldonfire. Fire.